0: Hello and welcome to Bevel Podcast with myself, Sean Horn. I am delighted today to be joined by the lovely Joanne Hessian. Hi, Jo. How are you? I'm great, Shan. How are you? I am very well. Um, how is everything going for you in these strange times?
1: Yeah, it's it, it's going great. It's busy, but uh, it's busy by choice um i'm not one to lose a, a a good crisis uh there's plenty of opportunity out there and lots to be done so plus we've got kids at home now and yeah so much more going on so uh i'm fortunate enough to be a glass half full kind of person so i i will plus you know i i'm very well aware i'm not i'm very privileged where i am i'm not on the bread line i have a house you know so um yeah no things are good things are good well, glass half full, you're definitely in the right
0: place. Um, as I have saying to you before, you know, b is all about um, our stories and, and the people behind the brands and the businesses and everything else and really dig a little bit deeper into where people come from. So with that in
1: mind, where did it all start? Where were you born? Uh, I'm, I'm a dub through and through. So I was born in the Stella Maris uh, on the 24th of June. Um, 1970 uh, so I was I, I was brought up in Dublin lived in Dublin all my life I live in Kildare now but just on the border of Kildare and Dublin so I'm only really just outside Dublin but look for most of my life I was in Dublin I'm a dub through and through. And where did you go to school where, where were you actually living in Dublin where did you go to school? When I went to Muckris and I, I went to Muckris on uh, Morehampton Road uh, in Dublin and uh, I went there from very young. So I, I went there from when I think I was about six until I was 18. So I went the whole way through the primary school. The primary school then closed, um, I think probably shortly after I left it and uh, I went into the secondary school there. So I went the whole way up through with uh, uh, the Dominicans there in Mukris. So I loved it. Fabulous yeah. school. We really I loved
0: have it. an awful lot of friends. We'll be chatting after. I have a lot of friends that went to Macross. Um, but so at school, what kind of child were you? What what where did you tend to move to? Were you sporty? Were you academic?
1: Yeah, I I I I was both actually. Um, I, I loved, I loved, do you know what? I loved just being involved. So I put my hand up for everything. Yeah. So yeah, I did every sport going. I played hockey, did tennis. You know, of course, we did loads of different sports. So I, I, I played table tennis. I think I might've even thrown my hand at badminton at one stage. If there was something on, I was putting my hand up for it. And I absolutely loved it. Um, academic wise, I was, I was, um, I wouldn't have been top of the class, but um I certainly, I certainly loved school. I found, I, found um, I, I just, I loved the people in school and that made it very easy for me then. Um, it certainly suited me. It, it suited me academically and it suited me sports-wise. The sports helped me to get to know everybody in my year very well. And, uh, and I loved that. Uh, yeah. I, I loved that part of the school. Yeah, Absolutely. great school. I, I, was, I was very
0: similar, went down very similar routes um and yeah, sport I think is such a great and and you take that sport into business every day and um, but at school, what did you like? I always wanted to be a hairdresser at school what was what was your hankering what What did you think you would end up doing?
1: Yeah, I thought I wanted to be a brain surgeon at one stage that was going through my head. I also thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist because I loved the idea you know, I obviously talked a lot and I and I thought I'd just sit talking to people all day uh, and that's what it was all about. But I, I think as I got older, then my real passion and my real grow was all about business. I loved business. I did accountancy in school um, and I left school then and I went in and did business. I loved business. Um, and I was naturally, I think, quite businessy. My father was, uh, was a businessman. He's still alive now. And I used to I used to love traveling in the car with him when he'd be going to work in the morning and I'd get to hear different issues and challenges that he was facing in, in business. Um, and, I loved all that. It was, it was very real. And, uh, and I learned an awful lot of practical things about business uh, on those car journeys and talking to him at the dinner table. Well, I had three siblings. I still, I have three siblings. Uh, I was third in the family and um, I was the only one that was really interested in that. So my dad and I, even to this day, still have fantastic conversations about business.
0: Yeah, and your three siblings are girls, boys, are you close together?
1: Uh, We are, we are, so Peter's the eldest, he's four years older than me, then David uh, is next, he's two years older than me, and then Lisa's two years younger than me, so we're two boys, two girls, two years apart, my father was an accountant, so it was all very measured. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, But yeah, no, no, they're fantastic, they're they're fantastic and very fortunate. And you, you have children yourself. How many children do you have? Yeah, I have three girls. Uh, I have three teenage girls. They're teenagers now. They are, Megan's 13, Leah is 16 and Hannah's 17.
0: So, and you'll know yourself
1: um, from having a younger
0: sister. Um, I, I'm one of five girls actually, but we were three girls for a very long time. Um, so I, we always talk about, well, my sisters often talk about middle child syndrome because I was number two. Um, I was quite happy when four and five came along. Um, but I think, you know, when you're close in age as well, it, it's really, really lovely. You kind of grow up together.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it, it's lovely for our girls, all right. I mean, I laugh in, in my own family because my brother and I, we both work together now and we've worked together for, you know, nearly 20 years. Uh, my, my, one of my older brothers, you know, and he he often says, he says, I don't really remember you when we were younger, you know, and I, we just didn't hang out together at all. Yeah. Um, I didn't hang out with either of my brothers. We had completely different interests and we were, we were completely different. I did hang out with my sister all right. Um, it's only by working with my brother as we've got older that I've got to know him so much better. And I'm so glad that I did. He's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I think we appreciate
0: each other as well as we get a bit older, don't we? It's very, very yes. different. And so from school, and um, left school at 18? I did. Uh, uh, did you yeah. have any jobs whilst you were at school? Pardon me? Did you have any jobs, Saturday jobs, anything whilst
1: you were at school? I did. I did. Uh, apart from the usual babysitting, I did lots of things. Uh, I I lived beside Ellen Park Golf Club, so I did caddying okay. uh, for some of the golfers. Uh I also used to do I used to deliver the Southside paper on my roller skates. I did that too. Um I packed bags in Quinsworth. Um and it, for a couple of summers I worked in the RDS actually. Uh I had been to a science and arts camp um in the summertime. I was really interested in that. I went to it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, run by this guy, Dr. Charles Mullen. And um We, I went to, I I saw an operation live in Vincent's while I was there and it was all about, um, sparking interest in, in teenagers for different careers. It was all about science and the arts. So, um, the year, the year after I did it, um, Charles asked me to go back and work as one of the camp leaders. So I, I did that and I, I did that for two years and I loved that. So, um, Yeah, I did lots of different, uh, you know, good educational summer jobs, good hard graft and some of them, Uh, all good for me, yeah. They're always interesting, and that took you then on
0: to college, and what did you study at college, business?
1: Yes, I did. I went and did a BCom in UCD, um, and I specialised in finance in that. Uh, I, I, You know, I was interested in finance, I was interested in accounting, uh, but I also loved the whole strategy side and the org behaviour side and and I love marketing there was a, there were a lot of it that I that I really enjoyed i was really glad that i chose business uh and i went from there on to the smurfit school and did a masters there and really i suppose the real reason i did it uh, i did a masters in organizational development i started to get really interested in how organizations work and yeah. um the reason I did it, though, to be honest, the European Social Fund was giving, we, we got our master's for free. So it was a no brainer. You know, you did an extra year and you got a master's. So we we all did it. Um, and uh, and I was really glad that I did. I, I did some fantastic subjects there. And it was the early 90s. And um, it was the first time ever that a university did an elective on business ethics. And I took it and there were about 10 of us in the class that took that in the masters that took it across different masters. And uh, I really enjoyed that. And then I did my thesis on uh, business ethics and whistleblowing, which was unheard of in Ireland at the time. I mean, when I interviewed companies, they just laughed at me and said, you've got to be joking. You know, I was asking, will there ever be an official channel for whistleblowers? And they just said, no way. (laughs) That's just, that's just not going to happen. So, um, yeah, so I was interested in that, but I, and when I was in, um, when I was in UCD, when I was in, uh, I worked for a local hotel, one of the Doyle hotels, you know, making sandwiches and tea and all that kind yeah. of thing. And I, I, um, I cleaned houses actually when I was in my master's because I didn't want I didn't want to be tied to the hotel hours and I only needed a certain amount of money and I needed to study other than that. So uh, there were some gorgeous houses that were built around the Smurfit School at the time and there were loads of yuppies living in them. So I looked in the windows and found the houses that had no dogs or kids and put leaflets into those. I my mum's car and her Hoover and two friends and hired them and we cleaned houses and we only needed a couple of houses and that gave us our 20 or 30 pounds a week or whatever it was that we needed eat so um, we would great fun with that we used to go into the houses and turn the music up loud they were all out working and uh, we'd clean it and then off we'd go and we did it in our own time it was great that worked really well um, but I left uh, I left the Smurf school and I went into there were no jobs in Ireland none yes. you know it was, the, it was the early 90s there were no jobs and I decided to uh, I applied to the big four accounting firms to get interview practice, actually, I had never done any interviews, proper interviews. So, um, I applied to them and got offered a job with Ernst and Young, EY, now, and, um, and and just couldn't turn that down. So, at the princely sum of six thousand pounds a year, um, I, I I took a job as a as a young auditor within Ernst and Young, and uh, started there in the early nineties and um you know to a certain extent I I enjoyed it but I knew that a career in accountancy was not for me and in and you know I just knew it wasn't I'd done four years of college I was starting because I hadn't done accountancy in my master's I was starting at the bottom of the rung of the ladder of doing the accountancy exams again and I kind of kept on I, I remember it well where um I kept on thinking: Do I want to be a chartered accountant, or do I want to be in business? You know, yes. and I knew I didn't necessarily need to be a chartered accountant. And because my dad was a chartered accountant, and he had gone out of accountancy and gone up into business, and uh, so I knew I didn't have to do that. And uh, and a couple of things happened around that time that really made it me made me think: Do you, you know what? You you only live once, and it's important to. Uh, I, I didn't have to stay there. So I decided to leave Ernst & Young, which was a which was a tough thing to do because it's permanent, pensionable, yeah. you know, sort of guaranteed job. But anyway, I decided to do a U-turn out there and I left. And I uh I actually got a job back in the Smurfit School uh managing their 15 master's programs, so managing all of their MSc or their MBS as they were at the time programs. Uh and I absolutely loved that. I loved and, it. And you didn't think at that time, because obviously, you know,
0: a lot of people left the country. A lot of people went and got jobs in other countries,
1: travelled a bit. That never tempted you? Not at that time. I did end up leaving when I was 25. Uh, but I hadn't, I hadn't reached uh, any kind of interest in it at that time at all. Um uh, you know, I'm very lucky. I have. I, I. I would still go back and live with my parents if I could. It. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, so I was quite happy to stay there uh, at the time, and I had all my friends around. And you know, I had gone to school near the, my university, so I had my university friends, my school friends. They, it was all very close and very comfortable. And uh, I was. I think I was probably very much in a bubble, really. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it never crossed my mind uh, until two years later um, I decided to, I decided to go abroad. Um, and the reason I did that was because I was enjoying, I loved working in the Smurfit school. I loved it. Um, and, um, it was fantastic. And I, and I got the opportunity to do some lecturing as well as managing the master's program. So it was a really fantastic opportunity. And the people there were just, just yes. amazing. I met the, I met the best really, um, so, some, you know, like some of the the deans and the and the academics that that had taught me that I that I then got to know a bit better uh, as as colleagues and uh, they were they were fantastic uh, human beings. They really were. I really enjoyed my time there. Um, but I, the economy starts to heat up in the mid '90s and um, being surrounded by masters and business students, um, everybody was talking about getting jobs and everybody was talking about the money. You know how much money were you earning? Um, and that kind of bothered me a bit. Um, and there were bits of when I was auditing and I was in companies in Ernst & Young that kind of bothered me. Uh, also, I suppose on, on the money side in that I, I really felt there's so much more to business than just the money. And believe me, uh, I'm not averse to having a lot of money or people having a lot of money because we need good people to have a lot of money. But, um, but I really, uh I really started to think, golly, is, is business just all about making money? Because everybody was talking about how much you're getting, how yeah. much you get and are you getting car, are you getting this? Um and so when I was twenty five, I thought, you know what, maybe the business world isn't really for me. Maybe maybe that's not what I'm cut out for. It didn't seem to have the uh it didn't seem to have the purpose that I uh that I had hoped it, it would have. And, um, so when I was 25, I applied to work for some of the aid agencies and decided to go and work for Concern Worldwide. And I headed over, I was sent to the Rwandan refugee camps after the Rwandan civil war. Okay. So I arrived there in 95, late 95. And I was there till, uh, just the beginning of 97, late 96. And, um, And that was a, that was a catapult for me out of my nice, comfortable bubble. Smurfit,
0: you know, (laughs) Klonsky in Dublin to Rwanda. I'd say that was a bit like backdraft.
1: Yeah, it was. Do you know what? I'm very, I'm very fortunate in that I'm a bit like made of Teflon in that I don't, you know, I can hear... Other people's anxieties and worries, and and I can I can empathise with them, but I don't carry them. Okay. Um, and uh, and I would consider myself to be extremely fortunate in that way. But also, um, I have a very calm gene, uh, and so when I hit crisis situations, I the calm gene tends to go on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I only realised this when I when I headed over to Africa and in fact, when I was I arrived in Nairobi first and and concerned get your papers right in Kenya and then they send you into I was being sent into Tanzania to the Tanzanian border of Rwanda and the refugees were walking across the border and we were putting them in refugee camps in Tanzania, and uh, so I had my papers was heading into. Um, was heading in over to the Rwandan border, and we had to. The plane stopped in a place called Arusha in Tanzania, and when I went in for my papers to be checked, they told me I didn't have the right papers, and they wouldn't let me go on any further. Now I was a twenty-five-year-old that had never got a bus to the west of Dublin, let alone you know, or the north of Dublin, let alone. Yeah. You know what I, mean? I was now in the middle of having a clue where I am, and um, and I, I just kind of I remember going, well, do you know what, I am where I am, and I. Um I'm, I, there was a, it, it's a bit of a funny setup because it's not the same as any other airport. It was kind of a, you know, a, a, a red dirt airstrip uh, in, in Arusha as it was at the moment. But there was a UN office, uh, a, a UN post office. And I went in there and I said, look, I'm trying to get over to the refugee camps. Um, and they said to me, well, uh, we send a postal plane every two days. There's one going tomorrow. At 7 a.m., if you're the right weight, we'll take you. And it was and it was a you know a little propeller plane. Yeah. So I had no local currency, I'd know nothing. And um and I remember, you know, sort of going back into this kind of uh, prefabby place uh and um and somebody that I had met in Ireland in the concern office had given me a, a number now there were no mobiles or anything like this at this stage but they'd given me a number of the office uh, in in, in uh, Tanzania where I was going and so I'm not sure how exactly I did but I managed to badger my way to make a phone call and uh, got in touch with them and they said it's okay Brian from Wicklow is heading back through that airport he'll be there in four hours he'll he'll give you some money oh, so yes. I sat down opened my book I was reading a John Grisham book at the time. I'll never forget it. And, uh, sat down and said, sure, what can I do? You know? So I sat down, read my book. And then before I knew it, bearded Brian from Wicklow, uh, came in and said, Joanne, is that you? And, uh, handed me money. And he said, you'll be fine now. He said, go and find somewhere to stay in Arusha. And, uh, for tonight. And then, uh, I told him I was going to get the, going to see if the postal plane would bring me over the next day. And, uh, So I'll never forget it. Like we could talk all day just on this because I remember walking out of the airport. Like if you think about it, a 25 year old, totally green Irish girl with her brand new big rucksack from um, the great outdoors. Do you know what I mean? Her brand new boots. Couldn't you just see me a mile away? And uh, these two fellas uh, ran up to me and uh, said, do you need a lift? Do you need a lift? And and I said, uh, I do. All trusting as I was. And they brought me to this old... A uh, Peugeot four oh five, and we got in, and they hotwired the car, and I was sitting in the front seat, one of them in the back, and, and one driving, and we started to drive down this road. I'd never been in Africa, you know, my, you know, in my life before, you know, and uh, all of a sudden there were mat, there were potholes that you could fit a cow into in the road, and he was driving around and everything, and then uh, we were halfway along the road, and um, we were passing these two other young lads. And, uh, he, he said, he, he stopped and he says, do you want to lift to them? So they hop in the back as well. So I'm in the front of this car and I'm thinking, well, do you know what? This could be the end of me now, you know, this could be it. It's like I the you... come out then, had it? <laughs> I just, you know what? I just thought, well, do you know what? Whatever, you know? Uh, and, uh, I have a, I suppose I, I'm, I'm lucky in that I, you know, I, I, I suppose I I, I have I have my own kind of you know strong belief side of things. So I sat in the front of the car praying like a mad thing, and um, anyway, in fairness to them, they brought me to this B and B place, and uh, the next morning um, came and uh, picked me up again at seven a.m. and or before seven a.m. and brought me back. And and even that I wrote to my mother that night in the hotel just to say, wow, thank you so much for giving me this cam jean. You know, I could never yeah. have done this otherwise. Um, but they brought me back and I was weighed and uh, I was put in the front seat beside the pilot with the uh, with the windscreen wipers going back and forth. And I actually had the most amazing flight. Like I, if I had, if I had been on a commercial flight, we'd have flown so high that yeah. I would have missed. I flew low over, you know, parts of Africa. It was like out of Africa, you know, that movie, it was just amazing. And I couldn't help but think this is so beautiful. I'd never have got this. Um, and so I landed in, um, I landed in Tanzania and, uh, and uh, somebody came and and picked me up. I mean, there was no, there there wasn't even a prefab where we landed because it was you know yes. near refugee camps. It was all makey uppy, you know. Uh, but anyway, so that that's where I headed off to. There, that's a long story, long way of telling me wow. getting to Africa. But yeah, so uh, that was that was a that that was a fantastic experience. You know, it was very, uh, in some ways, it was it was very it was very hard. There's no doubt about it. There there. But I think the biggest learning that I took from it was no matter how bad things get in Ireland, you know, it's never it's never that bad. Like the things you see, the stories you hear, you know, just like we were we were we had people crossing the border, you know, young, young teenage boys, teenage girls and the whole family had been macheted, you know, like just gone. And like you just you, you, you can't you can 't take to it. imagine it's just it 's just really hard, and so um yeah, so i think I think it was it was the best gift i mean no ma- no matter what little tiny bit that I was able to do over there i got I got mountains more um than i than I ever gave and and it 's funny, I decided to come home after um they were only giving six month contracts at the time because it was an emergency field. Uh, And I I was fortunate I got two six-month contracts and then, um, and I was going to stay um, and then decided actually, no, um, that, that I was going to come back to Ireland. And, and I, uh, you know, I had one of my, one of my best friends uh, that had really encouraged me to go, Um, you know, really, I mean, this sounds very soppy and everything, but we, you know, we had kind of known then or I had at least known when I went then that he was the one that I wanted to marry. So I needed to go home and sort that out (laughs) and tell him actually, (laughs) that that's what the agenda was. So, uh, yeah, so I came home and, um, I came home then, and, uh, I worked for a training company for a little bit of time and, um, and maybe just over a year, I think, uh, and then ended up setting up my own business when I was twenty-seven. And so, when you came back, though, back to the man, important. So, you, how did you meet originally before you left? Well, we we were we were both in college. He was doing engineering, uh, and I was doing commerce. But actually, I was going out with one of his best friends. So, um, I was I went out with one of his. I, I I was going out with somebody for a long time, and and and. Jules, who I ended up marrying, was one of his best friends. So um, Jules and I used to, whenever we go away on weekends and everything, we were just really good friends. We we got extremely well and we had fantastic conversations and always very challenging conversations. I loved it. Um, And when myself and this other fella broke up, um, Jules and I continued to be friends and we were friends. And I thought we always would be friends. And my mother was, she wouldn't, she wouldn't, uh, intervene often but I remember her saying to me she said you know what I think what you're looking for is right there in front of you and I'd go I have got to be joking you know no 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 we're just friends but it really it took and it was it was it was he that really um it was it Oh, I had, I had talked about going to Africa or, or sort of giving it all up. I loved that idea of giving it all up and seeing if I could survive, you know, like, could I yeah. survive somewhere else? Nothing. I loved that idea. And, uh, I remember sitting in Beauley's in Grafton street opposite him one day. And he said, well, why don't you do it? You talk about it enough. Why don't you do it? And I, and I thought to myself, well, I'd be darned if you're going to say that to me again, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, so that was that was the challenge. So I then I said, Okay, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do it. And I did, but um I really missed him a lot. And I knew of all the people that I wanted to um that I wanted to talk to about things, he would have been the one I would want to talk to about and things. And so when you came back, hopefully and obviously he felt the same. Well, it was kind of a bit unusual because he had felt he had th- he had thought we should have been a couple a long time before that. And I had been saying no to him. So he had kind of moved on when I came back and got a bit of a shock, really, when I said, uh, look, do you know what? I've changed my mind. And um he he! I, I really did give him a bit of a shock and the funny thing about it is is that when he, I came back halfway during my visit um during my stint in Africa I came back from my brother's wedding for two weeks and it was then that I decided to tell Jules that uh, I'd changed my mind and I remember he, he the poor fella I mean he was going out with someone else as well at the time too uh and he sort of looked at me and said what you're telling me now you know and um the next morning I remember him ringing me uh from work and um, <laughs> I remember my mother was standing in my bedroom and I was on the phone to him and I said look look you've just got to make a decision either you're in or you're out okay but if you're out I'm moving on you know and he said no no, no I'm in I'm in and my mother was looking at me going oh my god where did she? <laughs> what's, what's happened to her but you see I was used to I had just spent nine months dealing with yeah. uh, African police and people with guns and you know what I mean there was no messing around you didn't have time for anything so you, you, you sort of got things moving pretty quickly so I, I just said well I'm not spending ages at this either you're in or you're in or right so anyway he said he was in so we started going out then and we got married about uh, 18 months later. So you were 29? No uh, no I was I was 28 when I got married yeah. And where did you get married? We got married in the beautiful Tull House Hotel in Blessington. Beach. which is absolutely gorgeous and it is I've seen it's done up now since uh since we got married there but it's beside the Blake it's just gorgeous and down from Ruspera house there and um in fact it, it, it is the one place I'm going to go the first place I'm going to go when everything opens up again after COVID I am definitely going down there and we're going to spend the day there and hopefully we'll stay over there and everything else and uh with my parents and our kids too we've already been talking about it.
0: Yeah, no, so, it is beautiful. Um, I have friends there and it's, it's stunning. So at the same, around the same time, then you started up your own business.
1: Yeah, this isn't the kind of podcast I thought I was going to be doing. I'm just after telling my whole love story there. Yeah, but I'm really nosy <laughs> and I like
0: to know it all. <laughs> and I love a wedding. I love a wedding. So um... <laughs> there you go.
1: There you go. So then uh, you started, no, what, and what was your own business, your first business? So my first business was the Entrepreneurs' Academy. So it's the same business that is now up and running 21 years later. So it wasn't called that at the beginning. Uh, It's changed names a number of times, but it's the exact same business. So I set up a training and education company. And when I was in um, the refugee camps, I was very fortunate that I... After a couple of months being in, I was the the only person that spoke French, even though it was school French, but I was pretty good at French. And um, so the Rwandan, the Rwandese spoke French. uh, And so I was put in charge of the education project. So we had five refugee camps. We had 200 teachers um, and we had 20 schools. And so I was put over all those schools and I was the intermediary between the UN and the schools. And that's the way that worked. And uh, it was fascinating, you know, like you'd you'd look to your left and you'd look in the camp and just, just very dire situations in in many, many ways, many, many, many ways. Um, And then you'd look at the schools and they were only makeshift schools, but you know, the kids, the eyes in the kids, you know, and just the hope and just the fact that they were learning. And it was fantastic. It was totally where I fell in love with education. And I I fell in love with, I didn't know it at the time, but I know it now. I fell in love with how fortunate I had been in getting free education and getting, you know, free college, free master, everything like, honestly, um, I really felt very, very, very privileged and, um, very, very lucky. Um, and I, um, so I, um, I, I knew when I came home that I wanted to set up a business. Uh, I knew I needed a bit of experience. Uh, I didn't know anything about small businesses. So I, I went to work for a small business and I did tell them at the beginning that I was there to learn about running a business. I don't think they really believed me, but I was only 20 yeah. something. So, uh, but I, was pretty uh, uh I suppose assertive and I left 18 months later and set up my own um and um that was uh yeah that was great so I set up a training business so when was that Joanne? Uh, 1988. 98? 98. 98, 98 yes okay 1998 yeah and how where did you set up did you have a little office We you were home? No, no, I set up in my parents' TV room. Okay. Uh, yeah, in my parents' TV room. I used to look as people would walk by and I'd wave out, even though they couldn't see me and go, I'm in here. <laughs> uh, I didn't know anybody that had set up their business before. Um, and, um, but I just went for it. I, I got serviced offices on Leeson Street. Uh, so it sounded like we would got a good office space. And it used to cost five pounds. Irish pounds to bar- to rent the boardroom for an hour. So if I had a meeting, I had a meeting in there, and you know, I like I remember, I remember, um, you know, I, I went and I I tendered to the Chambers of Commerce, everybody, you know, um, I did I did big government tenders, I did everything. Uh, <laughs> I remember doing the big government tenders, getting down to the last three, and just before I went into the interview. You know, I was so young and so naive. I was checking, oh God, did I polish my school shoes? These are teachers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I had better make sure that everything is is spick and span. And um but anyway, I and I remember I, I portrayed that I was so much bigger than I than I was. Um and I set up with another person as well. And um so we we um now and I ended up buying her out of the business then about three years later or so, uh, because she wanted to go back into uh, industry. Yes. But um, yeah, so we just pretended we were much bigger than we were. And so we played with the big guys and we, we won contracts and off we went. I had sort of decided, I was lecturing again, and I had decided, I borrowed 10,000 pounds from my family. Uh, and I had decided that if in six months it wasn't working, I would just give it up, uh, but in six months we were busy, and um, and I paid back the full ten thousand within two years, which I thought was a major accomplishment. Yes, um, and um yeah, it's it's still it's a great business. The Entrepreneurs Academy is gorgeous. It's gorgeous because the people are gorgeous. I think the peop the people are gorgeous. We we've we've a very strong ethos. We're very much it is a private business, but we're very socially focused. Yeah. So we really, we, we really do care about people setting up in business and staying in business. And that's really important to us. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes I have to remind the team that we need to make some money uh, and, and we do and we do, but, um, you know, we are, we're very, we're very, uh, socially focused and, and, and the, 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 the team there have got fantastic, um, are just, they're just amazing, amazing people. Yeah, I've done,
0: I've, I've been to a few of the entrepreneur with the AIB. Um, ah, excellent. So yeah, no, it's fantastic. So start a business, you know, almost, I suppose, you know, as you said, making it so that you were playing with the bigger people. You weren't, you didn't have a fear, you know, and a lot of people do have that fear when they first start out Do you ever remember having any of those obstacles?
1: No, I didn't because, uh, no, I definitely didn't. But you see, just remembering where I'd been, I'd just been to the Rwandan refugee camps. It actually didn't matter what I did. I was never going to be as bad as back there. So I actually, it's funny because I think by nature, I probably would have been quite conservative. Um, and, um, And probably growing up in a house where, you know, my dad was an accountant, my mom was a stay at home mom. And um, so I wouldn't have been exposed to any sort of risk situations or anything like that. And, um, but, uh, I, I, I it definitely got, doing that trip abroad gave me the confidence to, you know, I had sort of given everything up and gone to Africa and came back and everything was the same as it had always been. Yeah. Uh, so after that, no, I got quite, um, no, I didn't really have fear. I had, I had quite a lot of courage actually. And I think by nature, I have a lot of courage. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm quite, uh, I've quite a good backbone in standing up when I think something is important to stand up for. Uh, and, um, yeah, so I, I do have a lot of courage, but I still would be conservative enough on the financial side. I've never borrowed big, um, uh, except for for one project I did um, in the recession, I, I borrowed big because we had to cash flow a project where we only got paid based on outcomes. Okay. Uh, and I borrowed big on that. But I but I knew we we, we had such a great um, we with such a great reputation and we knew what we were doing and we knew we could do the project. Uh, so it wasn't really a huge gamble. It was a lot of money, but it wasn't a huge gamble. And what um, age were you when you had your first daughter? I was 32 when Hannah arrived. So you'd been um, in business for four years? Yeah. And um, yeah, and she arrived. A gorgeous little thing as she was, and she still is. Um, and um, yeah, and I brought her to work with me. I, I I couldn't take maternity leave actually my business partner decided that she wanted to leave a couple of weeks before I had Hannah so that was that was a bit unfortunate um and I had to decide then whether I was going to keep the business or not and um, and we had a couple of employees at that stage so that was. That was that was a tricky tricky situation, but anyway, I decided to keep going, and I'm really glad that I did. But it meant then I, I didn't uh, I didn't have any maternity leave at all, and uh, Hannah just came everywhere with me in the rocket tot. I'm really lucky. I had I had a enor- well, I think they were enormous babies. I had big babies, but it meant they were great sleepers and great eaters. So okay. that's all they did. That's all they did. They just slept and ate. Uh, so I could actually bring them. I mean, I I had meetings with them. You know, in the rock tot at the side of the room. You know, I went to one meeting in in the UK. I remember my second child was only four weeks old, and I really wanted this meeting. And it was with a guy who had been the dean of one of the top business schools in the UK. And um, I walked into the meeting. I just fed Leah in Covent Garden. Went into the meeting, uh, put her up on the boardroom table. Walked to the other end of the boardroom table. Had the meeting. Uh, at the end of it stood up and on my way I picked her up and walked out and I remember his name is Leo Murray great man and he um, asked me months later was that a baby you brought into that meeting <laughs> <laughs> and I said it was yeah but oh, uh, yeah so I just I just felt I, I'm a I'm a real possibility thinker you know it's just so just make it happen but during those early days you know not taking maternity
0: leave but you know obviously you know you're young you're in your 30s Two kids, or you know, third one on the way. How, how did you keep that balance, or or did you not have a balance? Do you feel like you just drove and just worked? And
1: oh, I totally just drove and worked, there's no balance at all there. I was totally, uh, I you know, yeah, no, it was just driving and working. I, I think at I one stage, at one stage years later, because I had Megan, Hannah was only four when Megan arrived, and so I had four, three, and born, and um. And so I, um, I remember working out that, you know, so it's such a massive percentage of my, of years of my thirties were spent changing nappies working, uh, or, or changing nappies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was just, uh, it, yeah, it was constant. It was constant. And, um, so, now, thankfully, my my husband is not one to sit idle at all. In fact, he hardly ever ever sits down. He's always doing things. So he was a very active dad, yes. you know. And 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 would you know there is there is no there is no domestic chore in the house that he doesn't take on. In fact, he takes it on much more than I do. Um, so uh, that that made things a lot easier for me, certainly. Um, and um, yeah, no, my thirties were 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 very hard work very very time in your 40s when you went okay
0: we need to work this out a little bit better
1: yeah uh it came I think it came probably at my late 30s um I mean we hit recession and I was quite lucky I I had had can't remember how many team in the team maybe 10 and I had premises and everything else and just as I looked at our business model it wasn't really working it was too heavy you know I had I think I had a 60 grand worth of, you know, salaries going out a month, you know, something like huge. And I was kind of just, I was working to pay salaries yeah. and, um, it was very, very hard work. Um, and so a year before the recession hit, I decided to change the model completely. And I, I had had, we're a training business and I had had full-time trainers but, um, I decided to move and let all the full-time trainers go. And I just kept one administrative staff part-time and myself. So we were the only two sort of fixed overheads in the business and I let everybody else go. And I contracted in then trainers. And a lot of our trainers became, they then became professional trainers and they became contract trainers. Um, and, uh, and others went and got jobs and it was fantastic because I had said to them that, um, look, I'll pay you for, for so much time, but if you get a job sooner and you want, and you want to leave sooner, that's absolutely fine. And I think the longest it took someone to get a job was 12 days. Like it was, it was great. It was really great. Uh, and what's also great is that I'm still in touch with, with them and, and, and most of them and it's, um, and if not all of them, I, I, you know, maybe touch them on birthdays and things like that every year, which is lovely. But, um, but, so they all they all did they all did fine and some went traveling and did different things um and and then uh, and then we hit the recession and you see when we hit the recession, then my business was very lean yeah. so um I was very 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 lucky yeah. um we we, we we actually i did I did very well in the recession because we scooped up a whole load of business that where we we had never you know we'd never really creamed it and we never believe in creaming it at all in terms of pricing we just don't we're fair um in 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 fact we probably way over deliver in a lot of cases um but so when so when it happened when the recession happened and training prices started to fall we weren't the highest anyway so we won a whole low we won a huge Volume of business. I had this beautiful variable cost model uh, where I could just contract in trainers, um, and and so we did very well in that time. Was very lucky, very very lucky. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. It,
0: it and was so, great. And the,
1: the academy just
0: went from strength to strength, and then this idea of lift came about, um, which I feel like lift has been around forever, but actually, it's only it's not even three years
1: old yet. No, it's only two years old and a week, so it's it was only two last Saturday, so it's uh, yeah no, it's it's very young, and um, I suppose I've been re- I've been I've been CEO of the academy for a long time, and I I don't think I was really adding a uh, huge value there, and I needed to sort of step out of there for myself, I think, and for the academy um and um our financial controller is this amazing amazing businesswoman called suzanne carroll um and she was the absolute natural to go into the ceo position and she has really done a phenomenal job as ceo of the academy and i stay in as um I stay in on the strategy side yeah. and Suzanne and I still do all that together but she she runs the whole thing now together with a brilliant management team they are they're excellent I'm not involved really at all I I poke my nose in every now and then um and and that's about it but they're 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 fantastic it's it's uh, it's running brilliantly so I I stepped out of there really in 2017 and there were a couple of reasons why I had got involved in um I got involved in leadership training really because in my 30s um I'd found with uh, having a team I found it very difficult and really I needed to work on my own leadership so I started to study leadership and um and I did a lot of work on my own, myself uh, in the area of leadership um, and got qualifications around leadership and then brought the team over to the States and got them trained in leadership. And uh, we really started to look at a lot and I was very, very interested in it. I'm very, I'm particularly interested in, um, in character, you know, that we talk about leadership positions But, um, you know, you can have a a leadership position and not be a good leader at all. It's all, it's a completely an inside job. You know, it's so much to do with your character. And so much I was seeing when I was doing some leadership work in companies and I was seeing how respect was for, was dropping just, you know, just so quickly, you know, with the roll of an eyeball or whatever it might be. It's so easy to happen. Somebody interrupting somebody else and, you know, it just it's just so easy for it all to happen and it's all good character stuff. So um, I had always thought that I wanted to do something in Ireland about you know, it's things like the Jerry McCabe issue in the guards. I know brilliant guards. And yet, how does something like that happen? You know, where, where you're such injustice, you know, um, and I sort of go, how, how, how do we, how, how do, how does it happen that, um, you know, we, we can stand by in situations like that. Um, you know, when we're right beside them sometimes. Um, and I, and I was asking myself, if I was in that situation, would I have stood by? and? Um, not just that, but then you know we look at the past ten years, and we 've had issues in you know across all industry sectors across sports across uh, banking across look there isn 't the church there isn't a, there isn 't an area that is untouched and um, I think this probably goes back to i 've been interested in this always. Uh, about doing the right thing, but it, you know, we, it's about doing the right thing, and believe me, you know, Shan, it's not about being purer than pure or whiter yeah. than white or anything like that. You know, um, I'm far from perfect myself, but it ju- I just it, it really bothered me. It really bothered me. I, I, I always me. say I, I think it's about me. sleeping well at night. I always need to be able
0: to sleep well at night, and if you're honest yeah. and trustworthy, then you should be able to do that,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. You feel misaligned if there's something gone wrong. But I suppose there were a couple of things that, that there was, there was that. And then there was the whole thing of, uh, you know, I talked to people about, say, Joanne, don't, don't worry about it. It's just the system just the system. And that's not really good enough for me. Cause I believe we make the system. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, you know, so we can change the system. So that was, that was another thing that was uh, sort of thrown into the mix with this. And, um, and then, um, so um, I decided, uh, I think probably in 2016 that I was, I, I was going to do something about leadership um, in Ireland. And and especially because I think I'd had that that sort of Rwandan Tanzanian experience where I'd, I felt that Ireland were so lucky here. Um, you know, that we are good. We are good, and I love I love the people here. And I do think we are a really, really good country and we're such a generous country. But I do think there's room for me to get better. Um, and I think there's probably room for us to get better. Yeah. Um, and so that that was another reason uh behind Lyft. So In 2016, I started to talk to people uh, openly about it. Um, And then uh, through a whole series of different events decided in March, 2017, that I was definitely going to do something. Um, And we launched in 2018. So I I badgered my brother uh, to get involved with me Um, and, uh, and Sonia Lennon, who you know, who is one of my very good friends. So, um, and we, we put a great advisory board together and, uh, 24 founding partner companies, uh, fantastic organizations from the ESB and DAA and, uh, CPL and, uh, so many others that were just amazing uh, that got behind it and said, yeah, let's, let's do this and start it. So it's just two years old now. It's amazing.
0: Um, and and it was only a few months ago that I came and, and watched you talk about it. And I just think it's a very special platform. And, uh, like, it's difficult for me to ask you this, but, like, what, what makes you proud? Like, you know, if you look back on the last 49 years, what stands out for you? Um...
1: um I suppose, I suppose if you ask me on different days, I might come up with different things because there's, there, there, um, there are a whole, not, not necessarily that I feel proud about, but there are a whole load of, um, hurdles we've overcome and successes that we've, we've achieved. Um, the Entrepreneurs Academy team make me very proud. I, I, I just, I love them and I think they're amazing and, um, I think what they do is amazing and the fact that they give up their working lives to work there is, is I'm really grateful for that. Uh, so that's one thing, one thing that sort of is coming to my mind, just as you've asked me there is, um, we're doing lift in the schools and, um, and I have seen with my own teenagers, um, right in front of my eyes, how it has positively impacted them, you know, by giving them, the words to use to express how they're feeling about something. Um, And also like they're, they're, they're in lift, they're covering areas like what is respect really, or what is empathy and the difference between empathy and sympathy and uh, accountability and holding myself accountable, but also being able to hold other people accountable in a respectful and a kind way, which we're not very good at uh, in, in Ireland. And, and, uh, you know, so it's looking at all these gorgeous sort of personal leadership character issues. And I feel if I suppose I do feel proud that my, my first two teenagers have been through the Lyft program and do it in school and and, and continue to do it now. And I've seen a marked, uh, I suppose, maturity um, in their thinking out of that, that I definitely did not have at their age. Yes. Um, and that that makes me feel, it makes me feel very glad that I've done it um, for sure. Um, but also there are all kinds of things, you know, there are people that ring and, and tell me their experience and, and what they might have had the courage to do because they've been involved in Lyft and they feel someone is being disrespected and they have the courage to go and do something about it and you know all kinds of things all the way down to I know that through Lyft anybody that's doing Lyft is putting away their mobile phone more often and listening to the people around them and you know these are all things that are are simple but just not easy behavior change is very hard and Lyft really helps with behavior change So it's a, it's a gorgeous process for that. But there are so many things, uh, Shan, there really are. There are so many things I'm, I have the Carlsberg job. Uh, I know I do. I laugh with the advisory board all the time, uh, telling them that I do. Um, I'm, I'm very, I'm very privileged to do what I do. And, um, yeah, no, it's great. It's great. And this is only the beginning, you know, part of me sort of goes, wow, we've two years done. Okay. So that's 20% of our total because i'm only doing this for 10 years okay and i said that i'll give up 10 years you know and i and i and i do this for 10 years um but um so we've now got two done i'm going oh my goodness that's a lot that's 20 percent. we've only hit one percent of our target so but year years one and two were always about building strong roots yeah. um making sure that we 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 build credibility and yesterday we had a report come out of our activity and impact of the first two years and it's it's very strong and um, so we've got 14 over 1400 uh, facilitators nationwide now um that all can facilitate lift we've got over 6000 people that have been engaged in lift um you know we have 51 corporate partners um we've 28 schools 22 on the waiting list and uh, another 28 nonprofits that we're giving lift to so Lyft is based on a robin hood model which i love yes, i remember yeah. you saying it's brilliant yeah love it i love it you know I, I don't know where some of the stuff comes into my head sometimes but anyway um it just it just speaks to exactly what we do you know we ask those that contribute can contribute financially to do that for us and then it means we can give it for free to everybody else and it's the way it should be no,
0: absolutely. I completely agree. Well, yeah. I, I can't even imagine what you're going to do at the end of that decade. Um, but, um, but I will be watching avidly. Um, we always like to finish off, Jan, with a couple of questions that people have left. Um, sure. And been on the previous and they're just little questions. And I will. It's always strange when I do this bit because I always find it strange that I'm opening these because normally you'd be doing it yourself um the first question very simply oh well this is a good one for you because i i don't know what it would be
1: what is your greatest fear in life oh um oh i think it's probably that um i'm not sure it's uh, if it's a fear because i don't it's not a limiting belief if you know what i mean um but I, I'd hate the idea that I'd get to the end and I wouldn't have achieved my potential. Uh, yeah, that that. So I I, I really work hard to, I really work hard to to try and reach my potential and push myself as much as I can to reach my potential, as well as to help anyone I can around me to do the same. So uh, yes, yeah, so if if you can go that that. I don't know if it's a fear, but, um, you know, I don't feel frightened of it, but uh, that's the nearest I can come. There isn't anything else I don't think. And then we have, what is your
0: favourite place pre and post COVID? I think you may have touched on this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh, uh, Yeah. Telfar's is where we're going to afterwards. Uh, Do you know what? Um, I am mad about the West of Ireland. Uh, I have a good friend, Brigitte Kern, who owns the Burn Smokehouse in Listoon Varna and uh I plan on going there uh sure. very very soon for uh, a couple of days with the family I love it over there um <clears throat> and I love every time I, I I go over there uh so um yeah no that's that's somewhere that I absolutely love I love I love Ireland I love yeah. this country
0: we're very yeah. very lucky i'm
1: very lucky to have found it 20 years
0: ago and uh, you're stuck with me now that's for sure listen really? thank you so so much thank i thoroughly enjoyed that i would keep going if zoom would let us um <laughs> but i yeah i could have listened to you all day um and well, thanks, you. thanks for inviting yeah. me absolutely no problem thank you